The Mount Evol tablet has finally been published for peer review. In this video, we will take a survey of what recent scholars have said about it. Spoiler alert, they aren't very happy about it. Okay, so pretty much everyone clicking on this will be familiar with the Mount Evol tablet at this point. If not, it was a super tiny little tablet found in December 2019, which has the possibility of being one of the earliest mentions of Yahweh. This has implications for the reliability of certain biblical texts, so it's a big deal. About a year ago, the archaeologists that found it made it public before they ever submitted it to peer review, which is a big no-no in academia, and therefore has gotten a ridiculous amount of bad publicity. On May 12, 2023, their peer review journal article got published. Here's a picture of where the tablet was found, which could be the location of the altar that the biblical Joshua built. Here's a couple of reconstructions of the tablet. It was folded, so it's really difficult to get a good look at what is on it. Here's a picture of the proposed paleographic letters on it. Just an FYI, this video will say the word epigrapher a lot. An epigrapher is someone who looks at ancient artifacts to see what writings are on them. Here's a picture of what it looks like on the outside of the tablet. Here's a few pictures of really close photos next to their proposed characters. Here's the order of where they think the proposed writings are going. More on this in a second. Now we'll talk about the comments I've seen on it. Everyone that I am including here has a PhD in a field related to the Bible. And while they don't look as professional as I do, I think they have some interesting insight about the document. The first I saw was Dr. Jones, not Indiana Jones, Dr. Christopher Jones, where he says, I can see a few of the letters they identity, I think he means identify, in photos if I squint a lot. He adds that the hand copies make no sense. I just don't see what the authors are saying, he says. Part of the issue appears to be that the tablet is not flat. So they actually took 46 planar XRT scans of the tablet in order to capture all the contours. If it makes things clearer, they should release a 3D model rather than publish photos that look nothing like the hand copy. Even looking at this, I have a lot of questions. What direction are we supposed to be reading this? Why are the letters so many different sizes? Why a mixture of different forms from different millennia? Have the authors considered that this could be art rather than writing? He even made us a little chart to illustrate the direction the authors think the inscription should be read. As you can see, you could start at A equals 1, and then move to A equals 2, and then follow the rest of the numbers. Assuming that each of these letters are actually on the tablet, it's all over the place, and just the organization alone seems rather crazy. Dr. Jonathan Adler commented on the picture saying, Pareidolia seems to be a good explanation for how the authors of the Mount Ebal inscription article saw letters here. How did they decide to arrange these supposed letters into meaningful words and sentences? Only God knows. To those not familiar with pareidolia, it's like when you look up at the sky and see clouds that look like people or shapes. Our minds can trick ourselves into seeing shapes. Sometimes, if we want to see something bad enough, our minds can really trick ourselves into seeing ridiculous things. Dr. Adler also adds, it's common for epigraphers to squabble over a letter here, a word there. It is highly unusual for scholars to question whether any inscription is even there in the first place. I can think of only four examples, all involving the same scholar and all in the same last year. <laughs> 
So he's referring to Gershon Galil, one of the epigraphers for the tablet, who's came up with all kinds of ridiculous ideas in the past year. Essentially, he's saying, seemed like a really interesting coincidence. I asked top epigrapher Christopher Rolston, and he said, the proof is in the pudding, namely anyone with or without formal academic training in Semitic epigraphy can look at the images of this inscription, which are published in this article, and they can discern that there is no real connection between the herein published images of the inscription itself and the author's drawings of the inscription. None. In reality, there are actually no truly discernible letters, but the authors believe they can see 48 letters? This is quite absurd. Maybe there are some letters, maybe there are none, but the published images of the inscription strongly suggest that there are no discernible letters here. Rather, the published images reveal some striations in the lead and some indentations. Lead is, of course, quite soft, and so such things are understandable. But there are no actual discernible letters. For this reason, all of the claims of the authors regarding the readings and translations of this alleged inscription, along with their notion that we have here an ancient Hebrew text written in the Canaanite script, replete with the short form of the divine name of the God of Israel, Yahweh, well, all of those claims fall by the wayside. And they fall under the weight of the author's own images. The images make it clear that there are no discernible letters on this piece of crumpled lead. And again, the author's drawings of the letters bears no real similarity to what is present in the images. I wish the divine name Yahweh were in this inscription, but it is not. I wish the words curse and death were in this inscription, but I don't see those words either. I wish that this were a 13th century Hebrew inscription, but it is not. Facts are facts, and this article is very short on facts and very long on boundless speculation. The readings in this article are basically chimera. This article is basically a textbook case of the Rorschach test. I didn't pronounce it right. And the authors of this article have projected upon a piece of lead the things they wanted to say. So just an FYI, the Rorschach test involves presenting a subject with images of ambiguous pictures of ink. I think most of us have seen something like this. The person then describes what they see in these blots of ink. Anyways, Rolston continues, the article basically has no methodology. The problem is this case is that the author's drawings bear no resemblance to the published images, none. The authors have in essence created in their minds some letters they wish to see. I wish that I did not have to be so candid, I've honestly never seen any scholar or group of scholars create readings out of whole cloth, but that is what they have done here. The tragedy is that some, not many, but some, will believe them. But again, I think that all someone has to do is compare their drawings with their images, and it becomes crystal clear that the authors are seeing things that are just not there. Basically, this article is full of statements that are not documented. For example, the article states that ancient priests mass-produced cursed tablets as evidenced by recovered tablets with blanks where names and other specific information could be added. But the only bibliographic reference in the vicinity of that statement is to Osman's discussion of the Egyptian Middle Kingdom imprecatory texts, not to tablets other texts and precretory texts. Similarly, the article states these tablets reached their apogee in Greco-Reban times when people sought to curse anyone who interfered with their peace or prosperity. 
The only bibliographic reference in the vicinity of that statement is to Byzantine Christians and Aramaic incantations, most of which are from the antiquities market, a number of which are modern forgeries. Or again, the article will state things that are correct, but have very little or nothing to do with the putative content of this inscription. Thus, Job 19.24 is cited since it refers to writing on lead. It's fine to quote this verse, but it proves nothing. After all, we know that the ancients wrote on lead. They also wrote on bronze. They also wrote on silver. They also wrote on gold. No one is denying that metal was a medium for writing in antiquity. At least no one I know of would deny that. But the fact that the ancients wrote on metal doesn't prove that this folded lead was used as a medium for writing. And the verse from Job has nothing to do with cursing. As even a footnote in this article concedes, in fact, the context of the verse in Job is actually a plea for humanity and divine mercy. Or again, yes, we have curses and imprecations from antiquity. The article is correct about that, but there's nothing new here. Thus, in terms of curses, I think especially of the curses of the Tel Fakari statue inscription, or those of the Sphire treaty texts, or those of the Egyptian execration texts. Brussels and Berlin group. And I also think of the curses periscopes in the Bible. Yes, we have curses in ancient texts, but that certainly doesn't prove that this lead tablet is a cursed text. After all, again, the proof is in the pudding, and anyone can see that there is a fundamental difference between the content of the drawing of this inscription in this article and that which is actually visible in the images published in the same article. Wow. Not only does he have an issue with the epigraphy, but he also thinks a lot of the background info of the article is bad. That's a harsh criticism. My previous quote was a message Dr. Ralston sent to me directly, but he also shared with other journal publications. The Times of Israel published some of the quotes I just said, but not all of them. For the ones that they published, Dr. Vanderveen responded to Rolston's comments by saying what he said was misleading. Vanderveen then went on to essentially just explain their position of what he thinks the letters are in the tablet. Archaeologist Dr. Robert Cargill says, Peter, with all respect, they aren't letters. You all are reading striations and natural contours and degrading lead. You are arguing that a LBA scribe wrote in microscopic, minuscule text, followed by a path of text that looks like a drunk ant at a picnic. Please answer me this. In the animated GIF that you released as part of your article that shows the various layer depths of scans, which side, the negative or the positive, is the surface of the inside of your lead object? I'm asking on which side, the beginning on the left with the negative numbers, or on the, the or the end on the right with the positive numbers is the surface of the inscription. And did you consider the long, wavy depression that runs vertically down the length of the object in combination with the depressions at the top and bottom of the center of the scan? Vanderveen says, it is all explained in the article. Dr. Cargill says, the fact that your supposed scribe wrote in microtext on lead in a grouping that looks like alphabet soup is explained in the article? Later, Cargill says, you were claiming you chose a niche scientific journal. You were claiming that you chose a niche scientific technical journal that deals with the digital humanities because of the digital and technological aspects of your discovery. So I hope you don't mind some of us documentary hypothesis people responding to the technical aspects of your claims. 
Van Ravien says, this is neither a niche journal, only focused on science, nor are your claims that the incisions are mere scratches, serious claims. Read what I said above about the true letters and those on the recto incised by a metal stylus, and then try to be a bit more serious. Can we be gentlemen? He also says, I disagree with almost everything Galil has claimed recently, and I disagree with a certain percentage of the letter interpretations on the tablet, but I am convinced that we have enough true letters to be more or less certain of a basic reading. The metal orientation and the directions of the letters are in line with several inscriptions of Sarabin. You may not be aware of that. He then says, good to have people like you and Chris who know so quickly what others are unable to see even after many months of in-depth research. For the time being, let us agree that we disagree. We will continue to present the evidence while we are looking forward to better, more well-founded arguments from your side. In the end, let the readers judge for themselves who has the better share of the argument. Cargill then says, I am being gentlemanly with you. The question becomes how to address an article in public that was first released in public over a year ago, which has zero support from credible scholars, other than those working on the project and those affiliated with Dr. Shipling's organizations. Heritage Science is a pay-to-publish single-reviewer journal. Per their own website, Heritage Science operates a single-blind peer-review system where the reviewers are aware of the names and affiliations of the authors. Heritage Science therefore levies an article processing charge of $1,770 for each article accepted for publication. And you are correct to reject Dr. Galil's absurd claims over the past year and to distance yourself from them. I do recall our earlier conversations here, as they are a little more than part of a media campaign. We both know this piece of lead will never be included in any volume of in inscriptions except for those published by ABR. No legitimate scholar is taking this seriously. Again, I say this with all possible respect to you. Dr. Cargill also notes, you would have enjoyed this privilege if your team had followed the traditional academic process of peer review, then press conference. But that's not what you did. Dr. Stripling's team went full media campaign from the outset, knowing that it wouldn't go through peer review. It's why it took a year to get published and why you ended up in a single review, pay to publish niche scientific method journal instead of something in archeology, span biblical studies, or history. You cannot now ask that scholars will wait patiently while you continue the PR campaign because legit scholars have been unable to see even after many months of in-depth research We've been begging to see the research for over a year, and you gave us nothing new. Dr. Galil has already leaked all of this on his Facebook page. No one has bought any of this for over a year. Collegiality comes from collegial practice, not from doing interviews with apologetic sites and referring to all mainstream critical scholarship as liberals and skeptics. Not you, Dr. Stripling said that. You're calling for more wait and see when you've been playing that card for over a year now. We are being friendly. There's just no there there. Venerveen responds by saying, we had three specialist reviewers. I am not so certain that no serious scholar will agree with our basic interpretation, as you admit. I am one with international reputation. There were several others mentioned in a footnote who read the work and approved of it. Some leading scholars from Israel. Go and check the footnote. Dr. Cargill then shows how other similar lead inscriptions have a discernible pathway which isn't anything like Dr. Vanderveen's. They are honestly probably still debating on the post today. 
feel free to check out Vanderveen's post. Either way, Dr. Cargill is completely right that this has been about a full year of going public, getting all the interviews, all the attention, the spotlight, and yet have barely published anything of any value. Of course, they say, oh, but wait another year or two and we will really get the evidence, which means they continue to get media attention without ever really giving good evidence. Of course, the public isn't educated enough to know whether good evidence has been presented, and therefore we'll just trust them because they are Christians trying to prove the Bible. Obviously, I'm a Christian. Obviously, I think the Bible is inspired. At the same time, though, we need to we need to hold our fellow Christians to a higher standard. A picker for Dr. Gad Bernia commented on the article saying, It's just a disgrace. With all the fluff around it, the only thing that really matters are the images of the text. If those are compelling, the rest will also come into consideration. Unfortunately, they are not. While the analysis in the article revolves only around what they call inner A and inner B, other than those hand-drawn by Galil are provided, though plenty of images are provided for non-aspects of the tablet. From that point, you have to just trust the drawing, which itself is questionable. Knowing that the authors were not open enough with their findings to publish the photos, however, let's assume that there was a naming confusion that somehow none of the editors, authors, or reviewers caught. The images that are there show no more than what one can read on a lump of cottage cheese <laughs> or simply any tiny old blank piece of lead that has been in the ground for a while. There's simply nothing there. Dr. Jonathan Adler asked Dr. Benia, what do you make of tables 2 to 10? These are supposedly photos of each letter. Do none of them appear plausible? Dr. Benia said, First, they have to provide the epigraphic context. They can't just show micro-images of individual markings out of context. Second, no, I do not find them compelling overall. There are, of course, some markings that vaguely resemble a letter, but so do lumps in a spoonful of cottage cheese with the right lighting. Dr. Kip Davis added, yeah, I would have to agree here. There are some serious contextual issues with these readings, and I'm also struggling to see the letters as they have been proposed. The out-of-context things that they are referring to is that the publishers of the tablet, including the drawings of the proposed letters, they included some pictures of the tablet from certain angles, they included the proposed letters next to really zoomed up photos of where they think the letters are, but they never showed the overall picture of the tablet next to where the letters would go. In other words, it's extremely difficult for anyone to verify their proposed letters when there is no clear photos of what is around the proposed letter. A little black dot could actually be an indentation of the tablet or chip off the material, but it's impossible to tell because there's no clear photos. Take a look at this one. There's a bunch of black stuff in the picture, but is that an indentation, a marking, a shadow? It's impossible to tell. Dr. DeGrado said, I see a big lot of nothing, even when I squint. We could also ask about the use of vowel letters, Mactris Lectionis, in an allegedly LB alphabetic text. It's safe to say he means there's nothing there, unless he was like, There, there, Dr. Jones, it'll be okay. Dr. Jones added, You have to look at the close-up photos of individual letters. But yes, even if there's something hammered into the lead on the inside, the readings and translation make no sense. DeGrado said back, yeah, in isolation, you can make a ding into a letter here or there. Someone clearly worked the metal, but it's telling that wow looks like a gouge mark with a tail in the photos. There shouldn't be a wow in this text anyways. They're hallucinating first millennium orthography. 
onto scratch marks and reading the text in a random order as you know. Because of the article's lack of full picture, that can give the illusion that the proposed letters are correct while withholding the full context of the proposed letters, which prevents anyone from seeing if the context is correct. Dr. Bernia thinks this is manipulating to the readers. He says, this article certainly falls onto the category of data falsification and fabrication below and should be reported to the editor, who is a victim of manipulation for retraction. There are standards in place. It is our duty as scholars to push back against this type of outright deception. I'm going to start drafting a letter to the editor and I hope you would consider joining in. The article must be retracted. Dr. Jesse DeGrado says, Count me in, this is a fascinating use of pseudoscience to support a religious agenda, but it's terrible for the field to have this floating around out there. Dr. Jones responds to Dr. Barnia by saying it's extremely difficult to prove intentional deception. He says, did I miss evidence of deception with actual malice somewhere? An article being bad shouldn't be grounds for retraction in my opinion. Otherwise, that would open all sorts of floodgates. Crap illustration isn't necessarily deception, though. You'd have to prove that the authors knew that there was nothing on the tablet when they drew those hand copies, rather than pareidolia or simply being mistaken. I don't see evidence of this. I think this is really telling for Dr. Jones to say this, considering he was critiquing the tablet before, and now he's saying that we shouldn't just assume that they were, they were doing this on purpose. Dr. Barnea adds that the object structure, i.e. the actual unadulterated epigraphic context, is missing for inner A and B, as in the image I posted above. Is it intentional manipulation? I doubt it. Intentional manipulation is usually extremely rare in these situations. The main scholars in charge of the tablet are Scott Stripling, Gershon Galil, and Peter Vanderveen. I haven't talked with Scott Stripling, but he seems nice. Dr. Vanderveen has been really, really nice when I've spoken with him, and I've never seen Galil say anything mean to someone, so they don't seem like the type of people to intentionally lie about something, in my opinion, but I guess it's possible. In addition, this looks like it could be a symbol from the Star Wars show Mandalorian. Maybe the tablet is actually from the show. Surprisingly, this wasn't in the article. I don't know how they missed this. Just kidding, this is obviously a joke, but... Everyone's favorite Egyptologist, David Falk, said this about the tablet. I think it's a pig's breakfast. I think it's some of the it's some of the worst epigraphy I've seen ever. And I've read Petrovich's book. Um, it's an embarrassment. It's some of the worst epigraphy I've ever seen. It is terrible ceramic typology and scholarship, and it was published in an inappropriate journal or perhaps a journal of last resort. In other words, they couldn't get it published anywhere else, so they had to go here. He says, this is going to become fodder for atheist mockery, and the high resolution scans have still not been released. I myself asked Dr. Falk why they wouldn't do that. Why wouldn't they post the high resolution photos? You know, it would make sense that they would wanna make everyone be able to verify their findings. He says the official reason is to prevent being scooped by other academics. The actual reason is to prevent academics from contradicting your findings. In other words, if nobody can check your work, there's no way to know if you are wrong, and therefore the only two options are the scholar is right 
or we just don't know if the scholar is right. As Dr. Falk notes, a big complaint has been the journal they submitted to. Epigrapher Christopher Ralston told me directly that he hadn't even heard of the journal before. It's a legit journal. The real question is if the people who looked at the article had the expertise they needed to accurately check over the work, considering the journal they published to isn't a very popular one for epigraphy to be done. Vanderveen commented on why they chose the article. He says, we were asked why we submitted our technical article on the Mount Ebal inscription to Heritage Science. The simple answer is this is a high-ranking journal published by the internationally renowned Springer Nature Publishing Group. If you publish something important in science and our article is not just on archaeology and epigraphy, but also computer tomography, then Nature or Journal of Archaeological Research or Heritage Science is the place to go. In fact, it's the creme de la creme. Their journals are pre-reviewed by relevant top scholars in the field and are read by very wide readership, high-ranking, well above most of our scholarly journals in the field of Levantine archaeology, let alone Israel archaeology. We therefore feel very privileged that they accepted it for publication. On top of that, it is open access, available to anyone who wants to read it and doesn't want to pay $30 per article. That's nice of them. They want it to be free, so that's that's cool. A quick search on their website shows that their publishing group has never published anything on epigraphy unless it deals with the material on which it was written, not the text, which means they're not really doing epigraphy at that point. On them choosing the peer-reviewed journal they chose, Dr. Davis says, if this is the case, then they should have written two separate articles, one dealing with the tomographical examination of the artifact and the science behind it, and another about the artifact, its prominence, discovery, epigraphy, etc. I showed Vanderveen's comments to Dr. Jones you know, the person that was critiquing Vanderveen's work. And he said, I don't want to make too much of the publication venue. Ultimately, it's the responsibility of journal editors to find people with the relevant expertise to review a paper. We don't know who the reviewers were. So any comments about the peer review process are just speculation. Here is someone who thinks the article isn't very good, but thinks that it shouldn't be taken down and thinks that we shouldn't speculate about the journal since we aren't in a position to know if it was done correctly. It's possible that the peer review journal was able to find some good epigraphers to check their work. It does seem very sketchy that they would go to a peer review journal that very few epigraphers even know exist for such a strong claim about the meaning of the tablet. Typically, in these types of contexts, if you have such a big claim, you want to go to the best experts to make sure that claim is right. In this situation, it's difficult to know if the organization they went to does have the experts. To reiterate, it's a big deal for them to go to an organization like this because a lot of these times in these, you know, sketchy, huge claims, a lot of the times when, you know, claims aren't supported by the evidence, what people will do is they will, you know, they'll go to the main, the big, big peer review journals first, they'll get rejected, and then they'll just go to whatever, you know, small one, or in this case, it seems like a, a different field or a different uh, area of research to publish the journal. What about Dr. Daniel McClellan? I cannot see the majority of the characters that they identify here. Additionally, the reading they propose follows an incredibly arbitrary and winding path in, around, and through 
these different characters, which are also different sizes, different orientations, and even very different forms. Douglas Petrovich said, clearly the greatest lack in the Mount Ebal tablet article is the complete lack of reference to my identification of Hebrew as the language of the first alphabet. Going back to the 19th century BC or to my article on the LMBO, why not? This simply is not good scholarship. Disappointing. I would assume that Dr. Petrovich here, and I hope that he's joking, but apparently he thinks his extremely fringe, ridiculous view that Hebrew had the first alphabet should have been included in the article. This was more of a joke to mention this, but he's honestly the only scholar I could find that doesn't think the article's bad. I asked Dr. Scott Stripling, who is the archeologist that helped find the tablet, if there were any scholars that agreed with the article's interpretation of the tablet, to which he listed 16 scholars and or colleagues who reviewed the article prior to publication. I asked Dr. Vanderveen which people read the work and approved of the article, and he said there were several, but noted especially Israel Noel, Shmuel Ahitov, Robert Dutch, and Michael Barron. Shmuel Ahitov and Michael Barron were both old students of Dr. Vanderveen. They also have very fringe views among scholarships, so it's not a surprise to learn that they didn't have an issue with the article. I sent an email to Dr. Noel to ask what he thought of the article, and he said he wasn't an epigrapher and therefore wasn't sure about the publication. That makes sense. If Dr. Noel isn't an expert on the topic, then it makes sense that he wouldn't have corrected them on the epigraphy, which is what every scholar we have mentioned has had an issue with at the same time. I found it odd that Dr. Vanderveen would include Dr. Noel in this list as a scholar who has supposedly approved of the article when Noel himself doesn't think he has the qualifications to comment on the epigraphy, which is basically what the entire article is about. Dr. Dutch is an archaeologist and epigrapher that specializes in inscriptions from the First Temple period, which is 10th century BC to around 500 BC. I sent Dr. Dutch a message to hopefully get his direct thoughts on the tablet, and I will put his response in the comment section if he responds. Dr. Dutch certainly has the qualifications to know if the article is good enough, but it's hard to tell what exactly he would have seen, and we don't actually have a quote from him. Assuming that Dr. Vanderveen is right, I guess that would mean there is one person that doesn't have an obvious bias, is qualified, and still thinks the article is legit, right? Right? I don't know what to think of other scholars that Dr. Stripling mentioned. We don't have direct quotes from them. Obviously, many of them work for ABR, so it's not a surprise that they would take their view. We don't have arguments for why they think the article's arguments are correct, though. In the original post, Dr. Stripling phrased it as, we have scholars that take our view, in response to an article that said no scholars were really taking the article's view. But the idea that some scholars somewhere out in the world doesn't really mean much to me if we don't have any way to know what they were thinking. Either way, I've looked all over social media and emailed a bunch of scholars, and I literally can't find any epigraphers that don't think it's a terrible article, besides the people that actually worked on the article, and... Petrovich. I hope to hear more about this in the future as this could have been such a groundbreaking tablet that was found. But it looks so far like this tablet really isn't much help for the historicity of the Bible. Anyways, thanks for watching. Make sure to subscribe for more updates.